Um, Over these past few weeks in the Gospel of Luke, Dr. Luke has been trying to drive home a particular emphasis. In Luke 4 and Luke 5, uh, remember back with me, there's a phrase that we heard, and it said, this guy, this Jesus, teaches as one with authority. And then right after that, we read the story and the time of how Jesus cast out the demons, right? He even has authority over the demons. After the casting out of the demons, we saw that Jesus even has authority over disease and sickness as he healed Peter's mother-in-law, as he healed many. And last week, Zeb walked us through Christ's authority even over nature, even over the fish in the sea. And lastly, Christ's authority is even better than leprosy itself. Is there anything that this guy, this Jesus, doesn't have authority over? Right? And so in this passage, in this big chunk of scripture, he's trying, Luke is trying to help us understand the things that Jesus has authority over. And there is still one more thing remaining, and that's going to be the topic of this morning. So if you would turn with me to Luke chapter 5, and we're going to start reading in verse 17. Now, as we, um, before we read it, keep your eyes up. There's a few different things that we are going to encounter for the very first time this morning. So have your, your guard up to see what we encounter for the first time. And would you go with me to the Lord in prayer? Our Father in heaven, we simply just come before you today to ask for your help as we open up your word, this living word, and we pray that through your spirit you will help us to see the truths, the timeless truths, and that you will help each and every one of us see what we ought to do with them and how we ought to obey. In the name of Jesus we pray. All right, let's begin reading together in Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 17, and we'll go down to verse 26. Dr. Luke writes, On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Samaria, Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, Some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in, because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles in the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier, to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man, who is paralyzed. I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them 
and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. So as I mentioned, there's a few things we see for the very first time. And the first of them is we're introduced for the first time in in Luke's gospel to a new group of people. Did you catch it? The Pharisees, for the first time, show up today. Now, sometimes it's easy in church to use words and think we're all talking about exactly the same thing. So briefly on the Pharisees, right? Who are these guys? Why do they show up now? The Pharisees, in short, are a religious sect, you may say. They're some of the religious leaders of the day, and they showed up plus or minus 200 years before the time of Christ. And um, they were known to be the main dominators, if you will. They really dominated the religious scene of that day. But these weren't just some like Joe Schmoes, pastors only, if you will. These guys knew their Bibles. So for example, in order to be a Pharisee, you had to have the entire Torah memorized verbatim. That's this much of my Bible. Word for word, you had to know it. So these guys know their Bibles. They know their religion inside out, upside down, and backwards. Um, they're known to be so zealous for God, and we'll, get back, we'll come back to them in a little bit, but they're known to be so zealous for God and so zealous for his word that they start to add extra layers to the word of God. They kind of put a fence up around it. Now, one uh, Bible commentator used these words particularly the Pharisees, in their effort to protect the law, he writes, and to prevent the violations of the Mosaic law, they developed an elaborate system of traditions to codify practice and to build a fence around the law in order to prevent it from being violated. They were known that despite their theology being good, to build fences around this wall, Lots of do's and don'ts, right? Some of us um, may remember playing cards or televisions of Christianity. Don't bring them in the house, right? They were the modern day, or I guess they were the equivalent of the modern day um, in the time of Jesus. And we're also briefly introduced to the teachers of the law. Now, these teachers of the law are another word for them that we see in Scripture is scribes and um, Okay, teachers of the law, why are they mixed in with the religious guys? Well, in those days, there wasn't what we have, the separation between church and state um, concept. Church, state, or religion and state were married together. And so the teachers of the law were just really experts in their Bibles. And so it's these teachers of the law and these Pharisees who know their Bibles, if you will, who are sitting around. Again, remember them. We're going to come back to them here in in a few moments because Luke circles back to them. So we have these guys. Now we have to pocket them, um, and we're going to focus elsewhere. Now, this 
is one of the few stories in the Bible that we see not only in the Gospel of Luke, but also in Matthew and also in Mark. So Mark chapter 2, we'll see this story, and Matthew chapter 9 also give a similar accounts of this exact story. And we see that these Pharisees and these teachers of the law, they show up from what areas? It says every village in Galilee. And we see that they're coming from even Jerusalem, from headquarters. They're traveling four or five days to get here to see this Jesus guy, to hear what all the buzz is about, to set their eyes on it. Because when something is happening, when someone can show up with authority to heal and to teach, we got to see what's going on. Is this really real? We have to validate it. And so these teachers of the law come, and now they're sitting we see in the passage, sitting as Jesus is teaching. And behold, the scripture says, the power of the Lord was with him to heal. It's um, fascinating to think that the text highlights that Jesus had the power of the Lord to heal. It's as if Jesus who was also God, was unable. At the very least here, we see an element of both the humanity of Christ. He's God and also human. And we also see a strong divine connection of the divine trinity at work in the person of Jesus as the Father and the Son and the Spirit work together, the power of the Lord being with Jesus to heal on this particular Day. And it's at this moment in time when the, with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law already sitting down on this kind of like a teacher looking over your shoulder in school. Oh, yeah. Oh, yep. Yeah. Check, check. Um, they're all sitting around in the power of the Lord's with Jesus to heal. And in this moment is when this paralyzed guy shows up. But how does a paralyzed guy get there? Well, we read that um, he needed to rely on his friends, right? Because you can't walk if you're paralyzed. Just this past Wednesday, as we're working through um, the story of David in youth group, we, we talked about the story of Jonathan and David and how their hearts were knit together, their souls were knit together, and the importance of having God-fearing friends to want God's best for us. And in a sense, we're kind of getting a key of what that looks like, a clue of what that looks like in the life of the guy who's paralyzed. His friends bring him, but they can't get to Jesus. Why? Because the crowd is so busy and it's so crazy as the news of Jesus and his ability to heal and his authority over nearly everything is spreading. They show up and guess what? They're late to the party. You know, I, I was thinking about this this week. I'm like, what did this look like? It's almost as if word got out. All right, Jesus is back in town, and he just has this habit of vanishing out of nowhere. Like, and then he's gone. So, all right, he's back in town. And one friend goes to another friend and says, he's back. We got to get our friend there. And by the time they get the four friends and, and they get to their paralyzed friend and they show up carrying him, everyone else has beaten them there, haven't they? And it's so crowded. 
that they physically can't get through the crowd. You've been there on like a metro in a major city? Or, um, or leaving a Steelers game? Right. Except in those places, you always find a way to get to where you're going. Um, here, they physically cannot get him in. But why are they bringing him? In order to lay him before Jesus. They bring him in, and they can't. And so what does the text tell us that they do? Well, they come up with a solution. It says, finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles in the midst before Jesus. May may I please read that again? Sometimes we miss it. Picture this. Finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles. Sometimes we read our Bibles, especially if we're used to the stories, and we're like, oh yeah, you know, they just put a hole in the roof. and uh... We got to picture this. Let me, uh, let me demonstrate it in a different way. A lot of you know that I'm renovating a house. And when I first toured this house, um, I went in, I'm like, you have to be able to get between the ceiling and the roof up in the crawl space. And I'm looking, and there is no way to get between the roof, the ceiling, and the, and the roof. Like, there has to be a way, because there's a space. There has to be a way. And so we're going around, and like, where is it? And finally, um, we've got a picture up here on the screen. We walk around, and you see this window. This window is the only way to get into the crawl space from outside. Security issue? I would absolutely say so. And so um, some of your students have been so helpful. Um, I've skirted some potential child labor laws to um, <laughs> enlist their help. And so Nathan Jones was up there, right? Um, to get up to the roof, you had to go through an exterior ladder. My house did not have interior, indoor steps or any other way. And in those days, it was essentially the same. There was a ladder or some sort of exterior steps to get up on the roof, which is why the friends carrying their, uh, the four guys carrying the paralyzed man could get up on the roof. And um, the other issue with the house was there was a very slow uh, previous Roof leak, drip, drip, drip. And if you have plaster and lath and a very slow drip, what happens to that lath? And so if you don't want a big old bubble in your ceiling, you got to take it down, right? And so, again, we skirted the child labor laws to um, have kids up in the rafters, you know, kicking down on the ceiling, knocking it out. And here is what ends up happening when you knock out plaster, lath, and insulation. You have it up there, Logan? It's a mess. This isn't even the worst of it. It's a disaster. Here's what I'm trying to get across. Whenever you tear something apart, especially if there's people underneath, things fall. Dirt, dust, mud, tile, who knows? And just remember, this room where Jesus is teaching It's not like you can step out of the way of falling dirt, can you? 
People are crowded together, and suddenly it's like up here. They just start pulling the tiles apart. They're pulling the mud apart. They're pulling whatever the house is made of, and the people are like, oh, well, we wonder what's happening. As the first hand goes through, and then another hand goes through, and then finally they see these guys peering down. Like, well, that's odd. You, you see the desperation here. Now, picture yourself. You're in this moment. <laughs> it gets so fun. Picture we always often identify with the heroes of the story, don't we? But picture you're one of the people in the crowd. And you see those friends starting to peer down. You're like, oh my goodness, what are these knuckleheads doing? Don't they know they're destroying someone's roof? Don't they know their fingers are going to get dirty and they're going to have to go down to such and such to, to clean up for a little bit? But you see the desperation of the friends. And you see the desperation even of the man who can't move himself. They are so desperate that their only chance to lay this issue before Jesus is to tear a roof apart. They don't care one bit about the fact that it's not their roof. They don't care one bit that, I don't know if insurance companies were a thing in that, at that point in time, but they, don't, they didn't check the insurance policy. They didn't even give thought, or maybe they did give thought, we might be personally responsible. Who knows? But they were so desperate. They didn't even care what the people thought of them. They just wanted to get their friend before the one who has the authority to heal him. And so at all costs, despite whatever it may mean for them, they bring their friend before Jesus. They lay him before his feet. Some of us have felt desperate like that, haven't we? In our family lives or different situations. I guess the question is, have we gotten to the point where we are ripping roofs apart in our desperation? Because these guys, when we look at the text, we see that their desperation led them to something very important. As Jesus looks up and the men are like kind of peering over, the text says that Jesus saw their faith. Their desperation even brought them to the point of faith that this man, Jesus, had authority. Now, growing up, I had this obscure notion when I would come across this story, this passage. That when I saw the word there, it referred to the four friends. Am I alone here? I used to always think that the word there referred to the four friends. And it just didn't really make much sense in my brain. Because how is this man forgiven sins? How is this man healed because of their faith? Well, notice that's not what the text is saying. What it's saying is their faith. Jesus doesn't put a qualifier. He doesn't say, well, four of the five guys... Because of four of the five guys' faith. No, he says their faith. It's inclusive. Because of when he saw their faith. All five of them. The four friends that we, we read, there's four in Mark's account. And the paralyzed man. We see that their faith is not futile. Jesus saw it and he's about to act on it. So in that bustling crowd, as he looks up, as he saw the faith 
of the friends, no matter the cost, no matter the desperation, to bring their paralyzed friend forward to Christ. And when Christ saw the faith, even of that man who was paralyzed, helpless, really, what is Jesus' response to the paralyzed man? He says, man, or friend, or son, your sins are forgiven. If I'm in the crowd, I'm thinking, that's not what he needs. This man needs to walk. Hello. He has a very real need. Don't you see it, Jesus? They had to lower him down. He can't walk. But Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Kind of wonder what the crowd was thinking in those moments, don't you? Jesus like, um, can you see? Don't you know what he needs? But here is the point. Even though, for goodness sake, this man needs to walk. He wants to walk, so heal him. Jesus doesn't heal him at first. What does he do? Before healing the paralysis of body, he heals and addresses the desperate need of the darkness in the man, does he not? What an unexpected response. Typically, people bring someone who's sick and Jesus heals them. But here we have a totally different and even unexpected response. And Jesus' unexpected response deals with that malady that really has to be mended. And the most important issue or the most important sickness or most important paralysis that plagues any human being ever. You see, the most important thing to Jesus, the most important thing to God, is not our physical well-being, is it? It's not my personal positive feelings, The most important thing to God is our purity and our spiritual relationship. Our purity from sin and our spiritual health, not our physical health. See, Paul corroborates this when he writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4. Let me read this. This is 1 Timothy 4, 7 and 8. He says, Rather, train yourself for godliness, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as if it's promised for the present life and also for the life to come. You see in it? God sees different things. And in this story, God is not primarily concerned about the things that we tend to be concerned about. In other words, sin is, in God's eyes, is even greater than being totally paralyzed. In God's eyes, sin is greater than total paralysis. So as we move to, um, to an application That our sin is more important than the fact that this man 
can't walk. Our sin is more important than the fact that fill in the blank. The spiritual is more important than the physical, the eternal than the temporal. And so we say, are we appropriately, are concerns and our focal points appropriately lined up with what God's are? Do our sin and our purity occupy our mind more than our physical well-being? Our physical concerns or our spiritual concerns the primary focus of conversations, of our prayers, even of our lives? A Friendship Community Church, that we would be a people who see the things that matter as God sees them. And it's with this glorious healing, the kind of healing that really lasts, that we witness that the biggest glory, excuse me, the most important and most holistic healing that we've witnessed yet to date in the book of Luke It's with that that people finally start to pipe up and now they start to have an issue with what Jesus is doing. Let's look at who pipes up. It's not the ordinary people who say, you know what, you can't do that. Who is it? It's those very same religious leaders who love their Bibles so much or their scriptures so much that in their zeal for the law, in their zeal for it, they miss the entire purpose of it. They miss the Messiah and what he is doing. The scribes and the Pharisees, they begin to question here in verse 21. Let's look at it together. It says, the Pharisees, in response to Jesus forgiving the sins of the paralyzed man, they say, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Translation, the worst sin possible. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, I mentioned that there's a few firsts we see. This is the first time in the book of Luke that we see tension between Jesus and the religious leaders. And this tension is only going to get worse, isn't it? As we look towards Easter here in a few weeks, this tension is just going to start to mount. And this is the first instance that we see it here. It's So, interestingly enough, the very first instance of that tension, not only in the book of Luke, but also in the book of Matthew, and also in the book of Mark. You see, Jesus and God, he had a purpose for this story to be the first time that that tension really starts to arise. Now, notice there's specific words. Technically speaking. What is wrong theologically with that statement, if we're being technical? You know, it really, nothing is theologically inaccurate. You know, you kind of have to appreciate it, how sharp they are theologically, how well they know their Bibles. They say, who can forgive sins but God alone? They accurately recognize that there is one and only one who can forgive sin. And it's God, the one against whom those sins are committed. There is only one who can do it. They're absolutely right. And in every single scenario in all of human history, 
they would have been correct, except this one. Now notice what happens with their theology. They use really what they're saying in that they stated their theology in the second line. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Therefore, who is this who speaks blasphemy? You see what's going on here? They're using their theology, in a sense, to jump to an unfair conclusion. It's their theology itself that leads them to call God himself a heretic. It's kind of like opposite the way it's supposed to be, isn't it? You know, a few weeks ago, um, as Jeb was teaching on the casting out of demons, and the demons accurately stated, Jesus, you are the Son of God. And the point was professing faith. Do, do you remember this? Professing faith is not the same as possessing faith. And even among the religious leaders, not only the demons, but the religious leaders with an accurate theology, professing faith is still not the same as possessing it. You see, proper theology, church, is absolutely critical. We must seek to understand this book and who God is and how he describes himself in Scripture. But theology itself is not the goal, is it? It's where that theology leads us that God by his spirit would lead us through how we understand his word to a closer and more appropriate relationship with him. So we were actually considering this in Sunday school recently. We're talking about um, what some of the high school students are talking about in history class. So this idea of legalism, pharisaical legalism, how the Pharisees used to put these Fences of do's and don'ts up. We were talking about that concept. And and afterwards, Logan Baker wrote on the chalkboard, um, don't be a Pharisee. Here's a picture of it. So as we look at an application here, do we, when we are not appropriately aligned with what God cares about, how we give ourselves to allow Anything, our theology, our personal preferences, whatever it is, how we allow ourselves to be given to allow those things to lead us to improper conclusions. And that's exactly what's happening here with the Pharisees. So the equivalent, don't be a Pharisee. Don't be a scribe. Don't make issues, things an issue that the Bible doesn't make an issue. Don't put up fences to protect his word, yet may we simply act in obedience. And when these guys piped up, I don't know if you can hear a pin drop on a dirt floor or not, but I just imagine that in that moment, there was like, what did they just say? And how is Jesus going to respond to them? And he responds in verse 22. It says, When Jesus perceived their hearts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? 
Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? You see, Jesus, he perceives their thoughts, he, and he is now starting to get at the heart of the matter. And what is it? The Pharisees got to it accurately. They said, hey, who can forgive sins but God alone? And um, by the way, you can't prove that someone's sins are forgiven. So Jesus is putting his finger on that. He's saying, basically, I understand that you can't prove or disprove that this guy's sins are forgiven, but you know what you can prove. You can prove a physical healing. Now, this is really fascinating because how often was Jesus in the business of just proving something for the sake of proving it? Not all that often, was he? Whenever the demon said, surely you're the one who came from God, surely you're God's son, what did Jesus tell him to do? To zip it. He told the leper just last week, what? Don't tell anyone. And yet here, in a moment when Jesus is about to make two of the most radical claims that he's made so far, he's about to back it up. He's about to prove it with his actions. You see, Jesus is about to prove himself, but not on my terms, not on your terms, not on the Pharisees' terms, not on the demon's terms, not on the leper's terms. On whose terms? His own. God is not in any way duty-bound to work the way I want him to work, is he? He is God, and he does it on his terms. And in this case, he substantiates his claims, which isn't his typical MO, on his terms. And how does he do it? Verse 24. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately, despite the years of atrophy, disuse, the awkwardness of not really knowing how to walk, the man stands up, picks up what he had been lying on, and went home. And now he had been freed from the paralysis, not only of his soul, but also he had been freed from the paralysis of his body to walk and to live. See, the Pharisees and the scribes, they had it absolutely right. That God alone can forgive sins. No one else can forgive sins. Only God is able. Only God is powerful enough. And this man had been forgiven his sins. But his substantial current issue had not yet been resolved, had it? Here's the point. If we can trust God with the miraculous work and the miraculous gift of salvation, we can trust him with fill in the blank. If I can trust God to save me, then I can absolutely trust him with lives of children, trust him with a physical condition. We can trust him with anything. So this guy gets up and he walks out 
and the crowd, which once was a barrier to him encountering Jesus, now splits after he had encountered him. And what is his response but to glorify God? Because this man who had been sick in body and in spirit now turns in worship to to glorify God. That's the gospel, is it not? That the one who has authority over our bodies and the one who has authority even over our very own souls came in the person of Jesus so that we may have a relationship with him, right? So that we may be forgiven of our sins because God alone can forgive sins. And so if that's you, and this morning you're saying, I don't really know what's going on here. I know that I do a bunch of things and I still feel shameful for them or I feel ashamed. Friend, may I ask you just to begin a conversation with anyone saying, who is this Jesus and how is it that God alone can forgive sins? Just begin that conversation today. And now if you'll look with me, at the beginning of verse 24, we have one of those purpose statements. If you're a person who writes in your Bibles a lot, I encourage you to take note of those purpose statements, which essentially mean what was just said is said because such and such. Example, I wear a coat in order to stay warm. Purpose statement, in order to. Make sense? We see Jesus gives us a purpose statement. The words, but that, you may know. Jesus is saying, but that, that's the purpose. The reason I'm telling this guy to rise up and walk is what? That you may know. You see, Jesus is here to prove something. He's here to prove that he is God. And he's also here to prove that he has authority not only over the physical, which we've seen time and time again, and not only over the unclean spirits, which we have also seen, but he also has the authority that's reserved for God alone to forgive sins. Translation, Jesus is God. This line is verbatim in all three of the gospel accounts that have this story. Word for word, verbatim, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive God. Jesus is saying in no uncertain terms, I am God. But there's also another radical claim that Jesus makes here. And it's so easy for us to miss. He not only calls himself God, but he uses a new phrase or name or title, whatever word we put on it, he uses the phrase son of man. Now, if you're like scratching your head, wondering what that even means, you're probably not alone because we often don't have the context of it. But remember who his audience is. It's those Pharisees and those teachers of the law, the ones who know their scriptures through and through. And it's interesting because this phrase, son of man, this is the very first time it shows up in the book of Luke. It's the very first time in this story that it shows up in the book of Mark. And it's 
the second time in the book of Matthew, and it's the first public time that Jesus uses it. And not only that, but Jesus uses this phrase, son of man, to refer to himself more than anything else in all the scripture. More than he uses the phrase son of God, more than he uses the Christ or the Messiah, he uses the phrase son of man, which begs the question, why on earth is that so significant? Well, as his favorite self-designation, he uses it, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, God himself uses the phrase son of man because it references that he's not only God, but also man. He's also human. Now, you and I could obviously say that as well, could we not? But notice how it's written here. It's capitalized. It's not just lowercase. It means something more than just a person. And also notice, what word comes before son of man? The. This is not only a phrase. It's not necessarily even a name, but this is a title that Jesus is referring to himself. That Yes, he's not some sort of spiritual hologram, but that he is a human, and this title points undeniably not only to the humanity of Christ, but also to his divinity, or to the godness of Jesus. That's why Jesus uses this so much. You're saying, well, how on earth does the term son of man mean someone who is divine? Or how does it mean God? Well, Nathan earlier read one of my favorite passages of Scripture. And that's where we see this phrase, son of man, come in. You see, Jesus takes the phrase from Daniel chapter 7, where we see the word son of man show up. And he's saying, he's telling the Pharisees, he's telling the crowd, essentially, translation, what Daniel was talking about is me. I am the son of man that Daniel was talking about. That's why most of us are like, well, so what? Who cares? What was Daniel talking about? Friends, as we begin to wrap up, let me just read this. What what Nathan read for us earlier, this is Daniel 7. Just picture this. When the word son of man comes up, take note and see what is given to the son of man. Listen, Daniel 7, starting in verse 13. I saw in the night visions, Daniel writes, and behold, With the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. 
And so here, when Jesus forgives the sins of the paralyzed man and then backs it up as he heals the man's paralysis and he backs up his claim that he is the son of man, he's applying that phrase to him purposefully for the very first time that he is this son of man, the one that Daniel's talking about. And he continues to repeat this title time and time again, some 70 plus times throughout the Gospels. Jesus uses it to refer to himself because he is indeed human and he is indeed God and he is indeed the one that Daniel was talking about, that every nation and language and tribe and tongue and the one to whom will be given dominion and a kingdom and glory. His dominion is for how long? Everlasting, which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall never be destroyed. You see, Jesus uses this phrase, I believe, to anchor our sights, not only that he has authority over the body, not only that he has authority, authority over our souls, but that he also has authority over everything. And for all time, all glory, all peoples, and everlasting dominion. And we saw that the paralyzed man, as he leaves that place, leaves how? glorifying God, and that the people who saw what Jesus was was doing and saw what happened when that man encountered Jesus, how did they also leave? Glorifying God. And so church, here in a moment, we're going to be singing. What a great way to glorify God as we sing here corporately, as we sing in our cars, if you're one of those shower singers, to glorify God wherever we may be that we may be a people who our concerns become better aligned with his concerns. That we, like the paralytic, even like the crowd, may live daily glorifying him. After all, that's what we're going to be doing forever, isn't it? Glorifying Jesus, the Son of Man. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, our Savior Christ, we come before you and we admit that we far too often are not aligned with your primary purposes, that our concerns are not primarily your concerns. And so we ask that you will help each and every one of us understand where we are not aligned with you. Lord, that we will be wholehearted in our pursuit of you and what you have for each and every one of us. Lord, help us to understand that our sin is greater than the paralysis in our lives. Help us to trust you that if you are indeed powerful enough to provide salvation for us, then we can trust you with whatever else there may be in our lives. And Lord, help us as we seek to glorify you day in, and day out, here on this earth, and for all eternity. 
In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.